You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day today. There is a lot happening in the world of agriculture right now. Later on in the program, we're going to be talking with Secret Johannes, the Associate Director of the Public Lands Council, about a new lawsuit against the Biden administration for the listing of the lesser prairie chicken as endangered. And in segment three, we're going to check in with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at Stonex, for a look at these markets here in the week ahead. And we're going to close the show looking even farther to the future with Jacqueline Holland, grains analyst with Farm Futures Magazine. She's got her 2023 acreage expectations out. We're going to talk about these first looks for this 2023 crop. Before we dive into all of that, however, we're going to go down to Atlanta, Georgia. One of the largest trade shows in the country is happening right now. It's called IPPE. And joining us from the trade show floor is Sarah Muirhead. She's the editor at Feedstuffs Magazine. Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Now, for folks who maybe are outside the poultry industry, they might not be familiar with the IPPE show. Sarah, can you give us the rundown? What is it? What are all these folks doing in Atlanta? You know, it's it's interesting because people think it's a poultry show in terms of it's going to be a very small show, but it is a massive show. I think there's over 500,000 square feet of exhibit space, and they're down here showing equipment, solutions across the food chain. So we're talking feed, we're talking processing, we're talking actually the, you know, the labeling of the products as they go into the retail case. So the whole system, thousand exhibitors here. So it's, it's a massive event, goes over three days and we're in our final day here. Sarah, as I think about the poultry industry and 2022, there's one headline that comes to my mind, and that's highly pathogenic avian influenza. I've got to imagine that's a topic of conversation down there at the show. Lots of discussion around that. And the big question, of course, is, you know, will it come to an end? When is it going to come to an end? We thought we were going to start to see it subside. And now we've had, what, another couple cases here in the last uh, last couple weeks. And one, I think, just this week in, in Iowa in a turkey flock. So a lot of concern. Of course, that has influenced the price of eggs. So a lot of talk about eggs, too. We're starting to see a little bit of softening when it comes to the wholesale price of eggs, but we're not going to see anything on the retail side for a while. They're talking about, you know, probably throughout the rest of this year, you're going to see fairly high egg prices as we, you know, look to see how this is going to continue to unfold. Well, that's the story. It is a wait and see game. In the meantime, Sarah, for the industry participants, are there new products or things they can do to ensure greater biosecurity on their operations? Well, of course, there's the, the usual biosecurity type issues that we have to take a look at. And we talk about those all the time when it comes to trucks and you know transportation and when you're coming in and out of, of farms and feed plants and also the employees. You know, you can't have your employees going out and hunting or having backyard flocks on, in their backyards because those are all potential carriers into an operation. So one of the really interesting things, though, Mike, that I want to talk about is a study that's come out of Kansas State. And they're taking a look at what role the feed plant might have, where we're actually manufacturing feed and how we can mitigate any risks there. We haven't taken a, a, you know, that hasn't really been a focus over 
this initial phase of exploring when it comes to actually any kind of virus. We're talking uh, African swine fever in this Kansas State study. But, you know, how do we keep it out of the feed plant? How do we keep the feed plant from being a source of contamination? And then if we happen to have it in the plant, how do we get rid of it? So we're looking at AI, we're looking at ASF, we're looking at all those kind of virus type issues down here and how they're impacting food safety, consumer prices, you know, as well as just the bird health and welfare. Yeah, I mean, that's what it all comes down to is keeping those animals healthy and producing on this Kansas state front, keeping the feed mills clean. Is there a solution yet in order to to eradicate uh, these viruses if they're found in the feed mill yet, Sarah, or is that where the research is beginning? Well, so there's there's research that looks at different viruses and different viruses will respond to heat, for instance. If it's going through a pellet mill, sometimes you can kill a lot of viruses. With your ASF virus, it is not killed completely when it goes through a pellet mill. You can't just sweep up the dust. Some viruses, you know, you could just do some some heavy cleaning and, and mitigate the risk there. But ASF is pretty persistent. So they're looking at more chemical type mitigation products. Uh, formaldehyde is, is kind of one that's really being focused on. But of course, that's a, a bit of a controversy right now because EPA is looking to take that you know, and not make that available for that kind of use. So um, a lot of discussion on how do we how do we talk to EPA about that? How do we make sure that we aren't going to possibly lose a tool in our tool chest that might really, really be needed because it might be one of our top solutions for mitigating ASF and keeping it out of our swine herds. Oh, boy, more battles with government agencies for uh, for livestock groups ahead. Certainly nothing new there. Sarah, despite HPAI, the poultry industry and the pork industry had a pretty good year last year. Are there any new products or interesting developments that are coming out to kind of capitalize on that? You know, we haven't seen it's it's I've talked to a lot of people. We've done a lot of interviews. They're saying there's not a lot of massive innovation in terms of new products, but still they're pushing you know, we're looking at options for the non-antibiotic, the organic, um, those kind of what have traditionally been more, I mean, they're niche products, but they're growing considerably. So a lot of those types of products we're seeing showcase. We're also seeing, you know, what do we do with the, the grain situation? If we've got, you know, the Ukraine and, and some of those places where we might be putting a little more pressure on our, our grain market. So so there's some discussion on insects. There's some discussion on those types of products that maybe we can put in the diets that haven't traditionally been there. I mean, that's always something we look at, but, you know, there's a little more emphasis on that. That makes sense. Sarah, I'm wondering, you mentioned you've done a lot of interviews. You're talking to the folks who are running around the show down there, and I'm curious about attitudes. This past year was a struggle with HPAI, but also the higher returns. Is the consensus at the show to look for expansion in the coming years, or are they just trying to maintain and keep their heads down? No, there's, I mean, it's very optimistic. There's a lot of, and we've got, I mean, you're talking a global show here. There are 28,000 people from around the world in the poultry industry. So it kind of depends on who you're talking to and what part of the world they're from, right? But overall, the attitudes have been very positive. A lot of, you know, just talk about, we need to ramp up our herds, or not our herds, our flocks because of the avian influenza situation, right? We've got a lot of birds to replace, a lot of eggs on, on that side of the market to bring back into the marketplace. So yeah, I think there's uh, a lot of efforts in those areas. Sarah, of course, you're doing a lot of interviews. You're talking to those folks and you're bringing those interviews out to the public. If we've got listeners who want to get tuned in on what's happening in the poultry space, where can they see the work that you've been doing with Feedstuffs? 
So we've been pushing a lot out on social media, Facebook uh, largely, but we also have our Feedstuffs365.com platform. That's uh, uh, a place to go and watch our interviews. We are airing those once a day. We're getting uh, a lot of discussion on various technologies, various market moving trends and issues. And it's, yeah, a lot of good stuff. And, and watch for our newsletters and our digital issues as well. Keep up to speed with this industry. It is changing very, very quickly in all respects, not just in poultry, but everywhere. Sarah Muirhead, the editor at Feedstuffs Magazine down there at IPPE in Atlanta. Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stay with us. When AOA returns, we're going to talk about another lawsuit against the Biden administration from our friends with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Stay here for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Are you heading to NCBA in New Orleans? On Thursday, February 2nd, stop by the Christian Hansen booth, number 1639, for some exciting live radio. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the Christian Hansen booth. That's number 1639 from 9 to 10 a.m. on Thursday. On Friday, stop by the Learning Lounge. At 1130, I'll be facilitating Christian Hansen's panel discussion on the benefits from the daily consumption of probiotics in beef cattle. We'll see you in New Orleans. Pride. It runs deep for those in agriculture. But that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance. There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. Heading to NCBA in New Orleans, February's monthly grind is taking place live on the showroom floor on Wednesday, February 1st from 9 to 10 a.m. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the U.S. Meat Export Federation booth on behalf of the National Corn Growers Association. Also, on Thursday at 12.30 in the Learning Lounge, I'll be facilitating NCGA's panel discussion with special guests from the U.S. MEF and Port of New Orleans on what you need to know about the value of trade and exports to your operation. We'll see you in New Orleans. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Foreclosure protection services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, call foreclosure protection services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. Call foreclosure protection services now at 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. Eleven million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders 
can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. At the start of this week, we talked with Ethan Lane of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association about a lawsuit that was filed late last week against the Biden administration's new final Waters of the U.S. rule. Legal actions are accelerating in Washington, D.C., and that's not the only lawsuit brought against the Biden administration in recent days. Next, we're going to be speaking with Sigrid Johannes. She's the Associate Director of the Public Lands Council, and we're going to talk with her because they have recently filed a lawsuit against the Department of the Interior Fish and Wildlife Services over the listing of the Lesser Prairie Chicken. Secret, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Before we get into the details of this new lawsuit, let's talk first about the listing of the Lesser Prairie Chicken. It was somewhat of a complicated listing. Sig, could you break it down for us? It certainly was. So Fish and Wildlife uh, listed the Lesser Prairie Chicken. Uh, Their final rule came out uh, late last year. It was in late November. And what they did was sort of twofold. On the one hand, they split the bird into two distinct population segments. The northern DPS has been listed as threatened, and the southern DPS has been listed as endangered. And this impacts five states across the bird's range. It's Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma, Uh, New Mexico and Colorado. And so there's this sort of slanted line, diagonal line that cuts through those states and divides these two DPSs. And on the other hand, as part of that northern DPS, they wrote a 4D rule, which is a pretty standard practice for a threatened species. But what was unusual about this particular 4D is that it really does not accomplish the goal of extending, you know, legal protections for incidental take. If anything, it makes it it makes it worse and it makes it more uncertain for producers who are trying to operate their ranches in that area. And so that's a huge part of our concern with this rule. On the one hand, we think that, you know, voluntary conservation efforts need to be allowed to continue and need to be allowed to, you know, preserve the habitat that this bird needs. And on the other hand, this 4D rule is just a huge instance of federal government overreach. Yes, it is a big, big ruling. And you talked about the the requirements that the farmers in an area where the lesser prairie chicken has been identified are, are going to become more stringent. What are some of those changes that producers would notice on the ground with this listing? Sure thing. So it's it's an interesting issue because we've gotten a lot of questions, you know, is is fish and wildlife going to come out on my land on my private property and be looking around, you know, to do population surveys or to tell me that I've got to, you know, pull cattle off or what is this going to look like? And and the answer is no, but that doesn't mean that it's a win. Uh, you know, you might not have somebody coming onto your ranch and saying you've got to change how you do business, but you're also not really going to know. This rule, this listing does not include any clear guidelines for the targets that they're actually trying to hit in terms of health of the habitat, uh, numbers of birds, you know, there's there's no real guidelines or benchmark and it's impossible to hit a target that hasn't been defined. The other aspect of this that's pretty troubling is the 4D rule says you're only going to apply or rather you're only going to qualify for those legal protections in the northern DPS if you're following a grazing management plan that has been approved by a third party. And that has been sort of the biggest and most controversial piece of 
this listing. We've been asking, you know, for almost two months now, who's going to be on that list? Who's a third party, uh, you know, who Fish and Wildlife is essentially outsourcing this responsibility of oversight to, and they don't really know who's going to be on the list yet. So you can see how that opens a huge door for abuse of power. You could have any manner of groups, you know, who are who are interested in getting grazers and getting cattle off the land, apply for that status, and then suddenly have the ability to thumbs up or thumbs down the grazing actions that you take on your own land. And that's just completely unacceptable to us. So all of this was written into that final rule that was published, as you mentioned, just before Christmas from the, the Department of the Interior, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and this has occasioned a lawsuit. Sig, talk me through this lawsuit. What are you suing for? What's the ultimate goal? And give me an idea of the timeline. How's this going to work through the process? Yep. So the National Cattlemen's Beef Association has decided to move forward with, with tackling this in court. We're not abandoning our regulatory options by any means, but this is sufficiently you know, alarming to us and sets a pretty dangerous precedent for other species that we want to make sure that we are attacking this from every angle. We're working with uh, several of our state affiliates, including TCFA, Kansas Livestock Association, New Mexico Cattle Growers, and the Oklahoma Cattlemen's Association. And we filed alongside Permian Basin, uh, an energy company out of Midland, Texas, uh, and we are essentially filing to overturn the rule. We have, you know, a, a pretty robust set of arguments. Uh, there's a lot of different facets of this that you can take apart and that don't really pass, you know, the test here when you look at it when you look at it rationally. But we're sort of going to use every argument at our disposal because we our main goal is to get this revoked. We want a full overturn of the rule, and in particular, we want to make sure that this 4D system for sort of turning that authority over to third parties doesn't cross up ever again in another species listing, like for another bird, for example, like the sage grouse. That is a good point. And Sieg, I'm curious, the, uh, the getting this rule overturned, let's say this rule is overturned, uh, the courts agree with you, at that point, the lesser prairie chicken would be listed as neither threatened or endangered. Am I right? It would take us right back to the pre of status quo. That's correct. It would kick this back to the drawing board. Fish and Wildlife would have to reconsider their approach to listing the species as either, as either threatened or endangered. And what we filed currently, Mike, you mentioned the timeline on this. What we filed is a notice of intent in federal court. So we have a 60-day clock now. At the end of that clock, we'll move forward with our, with our real complaint. But this is going to take a little bit of time. So it's important that we stay you know, vigilant and stay moving forward on, on the legal angle in court. And it's also important that in the meantime, while we're working on that, we make this a more workable situation uh, for our producers on the ground. Okay, so let's say it gets repealed. All of a sudden, Lesser Prairie Chicken no longer listed as threatened or endangered. Sieg, I've been in and around the cattle industry for the past 15 years, and in that whole time, the listing of the Lesser Prairie Chicken has been at least a topic under discussion. I've got to imagine, even if this rule changes, we're likely going to see this battle resume in D.C. at some point? You know, unfortunately, I think you're right, Mike. This is one of those species that has been a, a perennial, you know, topic of discussion at Fish and Wildlife. It's a species that has experienced a lot of ups and ups and downs, you know, in its population numbers. So it continues to sort of be on the radar of folks in the federal government. But I think the important thing to note here is that for just as many years as they've been kicking this around in Washington, there have been producers out in these states on the range who are participating in voluntary conservation agreements to conserve the habitat. That 
that this bird needs to thrive. This might be a continual topic of discussion at Fish and Wildlife, but I think the much more important thing to focus on here is the fact that this has been a continual project and work for producers in that area. So as many times as it needs to be said, we're going to keep stressing the need to allow that voluntary work to continue. You know, cattle ranchers are well accustomed, as you know, Mike, and as your listeners know, to doing the right thing for the land and doing the right thing for wildlife and their livestock, whether the government tells them to or not. So this mandate isn't going to make a big difference to that desire to do voluntary conservation. We just want that added regulatory burden out of the way. For cattle producers across the country who are used to dealing with these issues, grappling with the local conservation issues in their territory, is there a way we can add our comments to this issue or is this strictly going to happen at the legal uh, courtroom space from now on? That's a great question. So because it's a final rule, there is no more you know, opportunity to comment, but that doesn't mean that people can't get involved. I've strongly encouraged you know, all of our affiliates and anybody who's dealing with this at a county level, a state level, call your members of Congress, talk to your local folks from NRCS, you know, get involved in whatever way you can. I think the more voices and the more pressure we add to this, the more uh, attention, frankly, it forces Fish and Wildlife to pay to this issue. And, you know, while we are pursuing this action in court, that doesn't mean that the regulatory side isn't important because, again, there's a lot of changes and fixes and sort of incremental wins that we need to get on that regulatory side uh, because the the court, you know, action isn't going to happen overnight. So we've got to stay on top of both. Talk to your NRCS folks, talk to your local congressmen and women. And uh, if you have any questions, get in, get in touch with one of those state affiliates or give us a call at, at NCBA and we're happy to help discuss options. Sieg, that is a great point. Can you tell our listeners where can they keep up with the work that NCBA and the Public Lands Council are working on this issue and, and all of the others that are coming out in Washington, D.C.? Sure thing. So, you know, we're, we're working on a lot of different issues. We're gearing up for our convention in New Orleans next week. And a lot of these topics on, you know, Endangered Species Act and wildlife management are going to come up in those meetings. If anybody is unable to attend, I encourage you to stay tuned to ncba.org and publiclandscouncil.org. And, you know, if there's a question you have that we're not addressing, you know, online there, give us a call. We have a full team here who is always sitting here ready to take your call, ready to send an email and get you the answers that you need there. But, you know, we're looking for Forward to discussing this with a lot of our producers from this impacted region when we're in New Orleans next week, and uh, we'll keep the conversation going. But that's ncba.org if you want to stay on top of this. Fantastic, folks. We have been speaking with Sigrid Johannes, the Associate Director of the Public Lands Council. And I want to give another plug. AOA will be down at the NCBA CattleCon in New Orleans next Wednesday. We'll be doing the monthly grind from the U.S. MEF booth at 9 o'clock Central Time. Hopefully we'll see you there. We'll be talking all of these issues related to cattle. Sig, thank you so much for joining us today on AOA. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick around. When we return, we're going to talk markets with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist from Stonex. Stay here for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Are you heading to NCBA in New Orleans? On Thursday, February 2nd, stop by the Christian Hansen booth, number 1639, for some exciting live radio. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the Christian Hansen booth. That's number 1639 from 9 to 10 a.m. on Thursday. On Friday, stop by the Learning Lounge. At 1130, I'll be facilitating Christian Hansen's panel discussion on the benefits from the daily consumption of probiotics in beef cattle. We'll see you in New Orleans. 
heading to NCBA in New Orleans? February's monthly grind is taking place live on the showroom floor on Wednesday, February 1st from 9 to 10 a.m. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the U.S. Meat Export Federation booth on behalf of the National Corn Growers Association. Also, on Thursday at 1230 in the Learning Lounge, I'll be facilitating NCGA's panel discussion with special guests from the USMEF and Port of New Orleans on what you need to know about the value of trade and exports to your operation. We'll see you in New Orleans. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, we have quite a few news items swirling around the grain and livestock trade and the financial markets on Thursday. Looking first, weekly export sales, pretty solid, pretty robust weekly export sales, including a two-month high in wheat export sales near the top end of pre-report estimates. We saw Japan and Mexico, the featured wheat buyers, Mexico and Colombia were the top buyers for corn and China, the top buyer in soybeans, including a switch from unknown destinations. China was also a buyer of both pork and beef on the weekly export sales report but south korea the top beef buyer mexico the top pork buyer for the week it was solid numbers though pretty much across the board so that could be adding a little support we did get a new crop soybean sale announced to china on the daily wire as well and then also usda officials coming out on thursday and saying that russia's estimate of their wheat crop is not feasible Combine that with new missile strikes from Russia into Ukraine overnight and tensions seemingly rising once again. The markets have kind of become desensitized to some of the headlines out of the Black Sea region. But with all of that news, with the USDA statement and some of the escalation of tensions, that could be adding some premium back into this wheat market. We'll have to see moderate strength across corn, soybeans and wheat here as we work through the trading day. Meantime, we see cattle and hong futures quietly mixed to slightly lower here despite strong export sales. The energy market is up a bit and also seeing the financial markets in a little bit of flux here. We have plenty of economic data out on Thursday. Fourth quarter gross domestic product grew at an annualized pace of 2.9% down from 3.2% the prior quarter, beating analyst estimates of a 2.7% growth. Durable goods orders in December surged 5.6% month on month in December, doubling analyst estimates of a 2.8% increase. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. It's time now to turn our focus to the commodity markets. Joining us for this discussion is Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at StoneX. Arlen, thanks for joining us today. It's good to be back with you, Mike. Uh, you know, the sun is shining where I'm at, and I understand you've got some cold, more cold air coming your way, so just keep that north door shut. I was going to say, it's snowing where I'm at, Arlen. It's rather be where you are. But I'm curious to start this conversation. Arlen, I want to take a look at the wheat market. That Chicago wheat has been in a downward trend for the past several weeks. But this week, it looks as though it's making an attempt to reverse that downward trend. Am I reading this market right? Yeah, excellent observation. Uh, we, we saw the markets slip down to new lows for the move below where we were before the Ukraine invasion by Russia. So we've taken out the war premium. In other words, the market is saying the effect of the war doesn't matter. Uh, obviously, we don't believe that that's true, but that's kind of what the market is trading right now. So what that means is with big, large, net short positions in the wheat market by managed money, we're vulnerable. Uh, we're vulnerable to going higher, and that's making traders a little bit nervous. So it's given the market a little bit of a reason to pause. Are we comfortable with this position? Then you throw into that mix India making an announcement. It's going to release 3 million metric tons, better than 100 million bushels from its food reserves, trying to contain red-hot food inflation prices there. And so that kind of raises, oh, kind of food supplies are tight, kind of makes the headlines and makes traders a little bit more nervous. Then you look at the conditions we have in the Plains uh, winter wheat belt and, and some of the cold air coming down. Now, most of our winter wheat that's going to be vulnerable to cold air is now covered with a blanket. There's spots that are not that will be vulnerable to more winter kill. But the market's a little bit nervous. Technically, we're still in that downtrend, and we just rallied back up to the top of that channel. So the true test is yet to come whether we're going to be able to break out of it. But when you look at the large, short positions held by the funds here, if they get scared out and the charts start to break higher and they try to get out the door, that means they're going to be buying those positions back, and there's no real natural set of sellers this time of year to offset those trades. So that could accelerate things to the upside. Will it happen? I don't know. We'll have to watch it. But what it says is that potential is there to get excited, and everybody say, well, what's happened? What's, what's the headlines creating this? It may not be any headlines, or maybe just a relatively minor one that triggers it, uh, but it could create some excitement in the market if it happens. Arlen, that wheat, uh, excuse me, that Indian announcement of releasing 100 million bushels of wheat, is there the possibility that any of that will make it to the export market, or is that all going to stay in the country of India? Yeah, great question. That's the next natural question to ask, but it's it's to stay inside the country to ease the supply shortage that's there in India uh, and to kind of help pressure food prices back down because uh, food inflation is very high in India right now. Okay, so we're not going to see that coming onto the global market, but it could be less wheat that India's looking to import. Arlen, looking ahead to this market here on the corn side, we are seeing some movement to the upside today. Is this spillover support from the wheat market that we're seeing in corn? Uh, to some extent, where we're seeing the real energy in this market is kind of in soybeans and in wheat, and corn just been kind of a follower of that trend. Now, having said that, corn is chopping more in a sideways 
um, pattern with maybe a little bit of an upside bias to it, and that's because global corn supplies are tight. And whereas <clears throat> we have good growing conditions in Brazil right now, we're growing a big soybean crop, which we can talk about, most of their corn production comes after they grow, harvest the soybean crop. Harvest the soybeans, follow the combine with the planter, plant the safrina corn crop. That's where the bulk of their exportable corn comes from. So that growing season still ahead. To the south of them is Argentina, which has gone through a ser serious drought, and their production has been significantly cut. We'll probably see additional cuts to their production from USDA. So that directly, with Ukraine largely being out of the picture, that directly impacts U.S. export potential. U.S. corn exports have really been hurting. They're still kind of hurting but we do expect them to start improving in the weeks ahead as they're starting to do now. And so with Argentina's crop still getting smaller and the growing season risk still ahead for Brazil, this is a market that can't afford to remove all of its risk premium. So it's doing a pretty good job now of just kind of trading sideways, chopping around with a little bit of upside bias. But you'll note the December 23 contracts, the new crop contracts, are actually trending lower. So with the expectations that we're going to see a notable increase in corn acres this year and flipping to an El Nino weather pattern, the new crop corn contracts are still trending lower, so farmers need to be paying attention to that risk. Arlen, one of the risks coming is this second crop, Safrina corn, down there in Brazil. I know Stonex has contacts throughout that country. Have you guys uh, developed a sense of what that Safrina corn acreage might look like as of yet? Yeah, we'll anticipate that it'll probably be up another 6% or so, maybe even as high as 8% higher. There's With the currency exchange rate differences, there is a big incentive to expand corn production, and they've certainly got the room to do it, planting behind their soybeans. So we are expecting that, and the moisture should be good as well. Now, forecasters uh, are a little bit different in as their outlook for the growing season. Some of them are expecting there to be ample moisture for the first part of the safrina corn growing season. And of course, the key is to get it to pollination in early grain fill before the dry season hits. And if they can do that, they can grow a big crop. And so that means March, April, and early May rainfall is very critical. Other forecasters say, well, if La Nina dies, we could see the monsoon rains that currently feed that key production area, Meta Grasso, Meta Grasso de Sol, and some of the surrounding areas. We could see that monsoon switch slip further south and end the rainy season early in that area. So some give great prospects for growing season weather. Some say it could be dry, could be a short crop. So we really don't have any consensus on that, and that's another reason the market just kind of has to maintain some risk premium now. All right. It's going to have to stick around in this area until we can get a better sense of what's developing in South America. I did want to ask you, Arlen, you mentioned that we're expecting to see some corn A exports start to ramp up. And I'm wondering, how is American corn priced on the global market? Has the, the pressure of the U.S. dollar come down on the international scene? Well, the dollar has been trending lower. We hit new eight-month lows overnight, so that's the good news. The bad news is, is when you look at the competing currencies of those who sell, who also sell corn, 
and that's primarily Brazil and Argentina right now. And to some extent, some corn is still coming out of Ukraine. Their currencies are so much weaker that we have a lot of room to grow to go. Uh, also, you have to look at the currencies of our major buyers. So while it's moving in the right direction, it's it's still leaves us as the the residual seller of corn. In other words, when our competition runs out of corn, then they come to the United States, unless there's a direct freight advantage like Mexico. So they're a pretty consistent buyer of U.S. corn. Um, right now, we're seeing Argentine supplies starting to dry up. Brazilian old crop supplies are starting to dry up. So therefore, U.S. corn is the primary option now over the next several months. Um, then as we get into the late spring and summer months, then Argentine corn and Brazilian corn start becoming available again. So we've got several months of window here when we're, we need to really take advantage of and pump as much corn out as possible. Be watching for those flash sale reports from the USDA. Arlen, I want to talk to you about money flow here in the commodity uh, ecosystem. We had economic data out this morning. GDP grew at 2.9% first quarter or fourth quarter rather of 2022. Is this going to change the way money is moving in and out of the commodity sector? It is. And let me say the perception is reality and what the current sense of the market is. And this morning's data, really, there was a lot of data that came out. It really gave very little fodder for the Fed to justify changing its stance on monetary policy. In other words, maintaining rate hikes for higher and longer than what the market anticipates. But the interpretation of the market this morning is that, well, maybe the Fed can maintain its policy and we can still avoid a recession that would hurt demand for commodities. So we're seeing um, we're seeing the dollar continue its trend lower, although it's coming off of that now, off that low now. We're seeing money flow into the energy and the grain and oil seed markets on expectations of stronger demand in the year ahead, particularly with China recovering. So that's the good sign. The thing is, on the economy, I don't think that's going to last because, frankly, if you look at it from an economic standpoint, then the tools that the Fed has it can't reach its stated objectives without inflicting more pain on the economy. So it's going to be very difficult for it to reach its stated objectives with the soft landing that the market is now anticipating. So there may be some rough, more rough patches ahead, something we'll have to monitor. All right. More rough patches ahead. I think that could be the motto for the economy over the past two or three years. Folks, we have been speaking with Arlen Suderman. He's the chief commodities economist with Stonex. And Arlen, we always appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for joining us here on AOA Today. Thank you, Mike. Stay warm. <laughs> that is the name of the game, folks. And stay with us here on AOA. When we return after this next break, we're going to talk acreage outlook here in 2023 for the United States with Jacqueline Holland of Farm Futures Magazine. Stay with us. We'll have more AOA coming up right after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. What a great organization, helping families in need like ours. It's a godsend. When an unexpected crisis strikes, Farm Rescue is here to help. Assistance is available free of charge to farm families experiencing a major injury, illness, or natural disaster. Our volunteers and equipment are ready to spring into action with planting, haying, and harvest support. If you or someone you know could use a helping hand, visit farmrescue.org today. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network.
Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private Healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is 35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We're looking ahead to crop year 2023, of course, here in North America. We'll be getting those crops in the ground for the summer crops here before too long. And the market is wondering, how is this acreage mix going to work? Well, analysts are beginning to do those numbers. They're starting to run the math, see how this thing looks. And one of the first folks to publish their expectations for planted acreage in 2023 is Farm Futures Magazine. Joining us now is the grain market analyst who did the research, Jacqueline Holland. Jacqueline, thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Mike. Now, you announced this acreage uh, expectation results here at the Farm Futures Business Summit last week. Jacqueline, it was probably good to get out and connect with farmers once again at that event. Yes, it was really great. It was great to hear what is on farmers' minds right now um, and also talk about potential opportunities for the 2023 growing season. Well, and potential opportunities, Jacqueline, that's why we've got you on the line here. We want to hear what are the opportunities as you look out to this next growing season? How do you see this acreage mix breaking down? Wheat has kind of thrown a monkey wrench into planning, hasn't it? It really has, Mike. Our survey found that farmers expected to plant 34.9 million acres of wheat of winter wheat last fall. Now that's a little bit lower than the 37 million acres that USDA came out a couple weeks and uh, forecasted. Uh, but I think the big story there is that it's going to be wheat acres that really drive a lot of the conversation in 2023 because we forecasted corn acreage at 90.5 million acres and soybeans at 88.9 million acres. And, you know, if there's any data nerds out there like me, you'll know that those really aren't, uh, really aren't spectacular acreage forecasts to kick off the growing season. No, they're really not. I mean, that's kind of what we would expect to see at prices, commodity prices at their levels pre-pandemic. Now here they are significantly higher, Jackie. We're not growing our acreage terribly substantially. In the survey, did you ask farmers why they're making their decisions like they are? I did, yes. A big part of it has to do with input costs. About 62% of our farmers uh, said that they're worried about 
earning lower profits in 2023 compared to 2022. And that's because of higher input costs. So seeing some margins shrink, um, there's there's some worries that with a global recession that we could see lower commodity prices. So that's also kind of clouding the outlook for growers. Jacqueline, on the soybean front, I'm wondering with this expansive growth in winter wheat acreage, are you anticipating a jump in double cropped soybeans later this summer? Absolutely. I think the USDA crop insurance programs that have gone into effect over the last year have really encouraged more of those double acres uh, to be farmed. However, you know, we know that there is an upward limit on the ex- on that expansion because really once you get north of the the I-70, I-80 corridor, some of those double crop rotations just aren't viable. So I think there is some opportunity for additional soybean growth in the double crop arena, but there's certainly an upper limit to that expansion. Well, and of course, so much of this is expectations, right? Or intentions were a long way still from getting this crop in the ground. Jackie, can you tell us how this survey works? Are you just emailing requests out to farmers across the country? Yes. So we send out requests to our reader base uh, and those who are interested in partaking take an email survey that lasts about 10 minutes and that just shares their intention, um, their, their past plantings as well as what they're intending to plant for 2023. And that's what we use to make our forecasts. All right, Jackie. And then I think the obvious follow-up question is, well, how does it work over time? Has this survey been fairly good at reflecting, you know, as accurate as we can get expectations for crops in the year ahead? Yes. In fact, last year, our survey was one of the only estimates out on the market that predicted USDA's Uh, USDA's forecast of more soybean acres last year. And again, that goes, that went back to our farmers telling us how much stress they were under with these higher input costs and what a big trickle down effect that was going to have for acres last year. Of course, you know, all of the the market turmoil and upheaval with Russia's invasion of Ukraine really changed that. But um, in the lead up to it, yeah, we had a really good finger on the pulse last year. That is always good to see help farmers make those decisions. Jacqueline, as you're taking a look at the results you've calibrated for this year, are there anything farmers need to do today to plan ahead for some of these acreage shifts? I think keeping an eye on input prices, you know, that's something that our farmers told us is very top of mind for them. Uh, UAN prices remain pretty high, and that could be a deterrent for corn acres in the in the coming in the coming months. Um, margins between corn and soybeans are just really really similar right now, so I think a you know, I think how those numbers shake out is really going to come down to about the 30% of growers in our survey who said that they still hadn't decided on 2023 acreage as of the end of 2022. All right. Just like a political race, the undecideds will make those final determinations when they pull the trigger on getting those inputs done. Jacqueline, of course, you write for Farm Futures. Can you tell our listeners how they can read up on the work you've been doing? 
Yes, head over to our website at www.farmfutures.com. You can sign up for my daily morning report as well as my ongoing uh, market commentary column, Equornomics, where I take deep dives into further market adventures. Fantastic, folks. Check that out. We have been speaking with Jacqueline Holland, Grain Market Analyst with Farm Futures. And Jacqueline, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll be talking with the head of the Republican Ag Committee in the House, G.T. Thompson. Tune in then for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. As a farmer, I want a cooperative that's there for me. Not the other way around. A local co-op that works for me and works with CHS. To connect me with local experts I know and trust. And put a global network of markets and supply at my fingertips. A co-op that's here to help us. Own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.